that God is not a respecter of persons, so how can he have people that are more chosen than any other that would kind of contradict the Bible? Um, so then... Okay, so hold, hold on. Pause there real quick. So when okay. you say in your thinking that would contradict the Bible because God yeah. has a chosen people, why would that contradict the Bible? Because if he's not a respecter of persons, then how does he have a chosen people? Okay. Okay. So go ahead, finish. So I understand what your understanding of chosen people are. Because, I mean, my thoughts were, like, no matter what they did right or wrong, this is God's people. And, you know, they go first. They go, they go to heaven first. And then everybody else. And, like, that just doesn't make sense. If you're, if you, if God is not a respecter of persons, if a person who isn't of that group of the quote unquote chosen people and they are super close to God, they live their entire life for God, why would they not be of the chosen? Like that's just I don't know. That just never jihad with me. So Okay. Okay. Yeah. Mr. Samaya, your viewpoint on this subject of chosen people. Wow. Um, chosen people, um, well, I guess I could start with, um, a bloodline, um, and I believe it began with, um, Abraham. Okay. Um, okay. And God told Abraham that he would bless his seed and he also pointed to the stars and and um made reference to the innumerable or um, had massive amount that could not be counted by man and compared his feet, his his uh, offspring uh, to that and how they would be blessed. So uh, in my mind, the chosen people, and, 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 and when you do a comparison, too, this is another thing, too. <laughs> so, look, I might be a little confused at this point, but uh, <laughs> because the, the Bible said that Abraham was neither a Jew nor a Christian, right? Correct. So um, this thing about the Jews being the chosen people, uh, it, it doesn't deal with what I'm thinking about in terms of the blessing that was bestowed upon Abraham. Okay. But um, anyway, um, um, what else can I say about about the the chosen people? Um, I just I don't know I. I'm thinking that they are uh, favored and close to God's heart, 
um, just because. The the other okay. thing too is, you know, God does as He will, you know, and He knows best. And so I'm not sure if the idea of respect of persons comes into place when it comes to people who love God. Okay. 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 Can you, Sister Samaya, recall off the top of your head any scripture you've ever read in the Bible that said the Jews were God's chosen people? No, and that's another thing that uh, to say that they are is another thing that does not uh, deal with me and what I'm thinking um, because I have not. I have not seen that. Okay, okay. So, Beth, have you ever seen a scripture that said the Jews were God's chosen people? Um, yes and no. Okay, explain. I feel like everything I'm answering is, like, double-sided. Um... I have seen plenty of scripture that they used to say that this means that the Jews were the chosen people, but I'm not seeing that it's concrete proof of anything. Okay, okay. Like um, in Deuteronomy where it says you are a people holy to the Lord your God and the Lord has chosen you to be a people of his own possession. And out of all the nations that are on place, there's that thing, that, that, that. Scripture, I've heard that being used. Um, but even when using yeah. it, does it say the Jews are God's chosen people? No, that's what I'm saying. No, like straight out, absolutely not. But I've seen scripture that that they like to use to justify their position, yes. Okay. And, and as we teach, when you take a scripture out of the text and you isolate it, you can make that context be completely distorted from what the original context was about. So the same way in Deuteronomy where it says women should not wear the apparel of a man. Okay, so by taking that out of context and isolating it, we now have a doctrine in the Pentecostal church that it is a sin for women to wear pants or anything that would be manly, T-shirts pads, all those type of things, it's, it's a sin because the Bible says women are not allowed to wear pants. So then the question that I've been asked is where does it say that women are not allowed to wear pants? It says women aren't to wear the apparel of a man, but to isolate pants, and you get what I'm saying. But when you take that scripture and put it back in context and bring everything else into play, it takes on a totally different tone of what was being said at that moment versus how it's being used to uh, uh, control what women wear when when they're out and about. Can't wear pants. Can't wear pants. Can't wear pants because that's the devil. So that's kind of what we will venture into today is uh, did God say that the Jews were his chosen people? And we let the scripture speak for itself. So um, today we see Jerusalem filled with these people that we call Jews. 
And today we see this conflict, uh, uh, and, I'm, and, and the conflict I'm making reference to is the one going on right now here in America amongst the church. Because you have two two ideologies in church. You have replacement theology, and then you have the Israel theology. Are either one of you all familiar with replacement theology? Uh, you have to give me an idea of what you're talking about first. Right. Um, re- <laughs> replacement theology is the teaching in the church that uh, Israel failed in their assignment. So God then sends Jesus to earth to start the church. And then the church then takes the place of Israel and kicks Israel out the box. So the Jews are now kicked out the box because the church replaced Israel. And this is why now the the, uh, Israel had 12 tribes, the church has 12 apostles. And you keep yeah, going down these taught, comparisons. Go ahead. I was going to say, I, I've never heard it called replacement theology. I've, I've heard it called supersessionism. Oh, wow. We've created a new big word now. Okay. <laughs> supersessionism. <laughs> say, say, say it one more time. Supersessionism. That's what I learned wow. in my, my theology class in college. Yeah. What, what, what's, the, what's the definition of that word? Super. Okay, so session session would be somebody succeeding something, but where's the super come in at? Uh, Mike, you ever heard of such a word? Super super succession? (laughs) No. Okay, so super sessionism, also called replacement theology, there we go, is a Christian doctrine which asserts that the new covenant through Jesus Christ supersedes the old covenant, which was made exclusively with the Jewish people. Okay. Okay. All right. Kudos. 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 So it's just saying replacement theology in a more sophisticated way, I guess, right? (laughs) Right. Right. Okay. So that's replacement theology. So you have some churches who feel that Israel is not a void anymore. It doesn't matter. Jews, all this, it doesn't matter. God divorced them. He kicked them out. He doesn't love them no more. He turned his back on them, and now he loves the church. But this is where the subject comes in at uh, through Paul, where Paul brings up that the only reason the church came about was so that God could use the church to provoke Israel to jealousy because they would feel like God loved the church more than them, and then out of retaliation, they would return back to God out of their jealousy towards the church so that God could have the one that he really wanted, but the church was just an instrument to be used to get the attention of the Jewish people to get them to come back. Wasn't yes, that make is, God a narcissist? I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but that was very... No, you're good. What did, what did you... What did you say? I didn't say it again. What, wouldn't that make God a narcissist? Um, explain narcissist. Like manipulating another being, another person, in order to get the desired result you want. Instead of being I didn't genuine. Know manipulation. I didn't know manipulation played a part in narcissism. I thought narcissism oh, yeah. dealt with 
dealt with, I, I think I'm better than everybody. Look at me. So I didn't know manipulation played a part in narcissism. Sister Samaya, you saying yes? I, I, I was agreeing with you. Um, my impression was it was about self. Got you, got you, got you. Um, if if that be, Sister Beth, that manipulation is therefore then a part of how a narcissist would act, then yes, I would have to agree that to your statement that that kind of pays God out to be this narcissist, that I really don't want nothing with you. I just need to use you for the current time for the overall agenda I got. Right, because it is focused on self. The reason that I'm saying narcissist, because if you're a narcissist, you're so focused on self that you don't care who you hurt or manipulate in order to serve yourself. I got you. I got you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that would kind of put God into the light of that, that doing that, that, and, and if you think about it, that's, that's a wild, that's a wild viewpoint to put on God that the only reason the church came about, so let, let's just put it all together. The only reason, and I'm speaking from a Christian standpoint, the only reason that God sent his only son to die for the sins of the world and to establish the church was so that God could then use this church called the bride of christ as the church calls themselves and then the bride of christ who god is using is really not the woman or the thing that he wants he really wants the other thing but he has to settle for this right now in order to get what he really wants so now the question then would be once the jews return because that's the other part of the theology is that at some point in the future when the jews return then the jews will then combine with the church and then create one new body. But the question is, when God gets his the love of his life back, what happens to the one that he used to get the one he loved back? Do, does, does the church now get treated second place when it's been first place? All the, I'm being sarcastic, but you get my point. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... So that's one viewpoint that the church holds. Now, the other side of the church holds that Israel, like the Beth brought up, is God's chosen people. And no matter what they do, no matter what they've done, they're saved. And when Jesus comes back, uh, he is going to offer them salvation first before anybody else. So they don't, they don't, have, to, they don't have to be born again like Christians do. They don't have to be washed in the blood like the Christians do. They don't have to go through none of the steps that the Christians do because they are God's chosen people. So God forfeits those type of measures for them, but everybody else has to go through all these loops and holes in order to get God to stop being mad at us for the original sin that Daddy Adam did. The Jews, that the, the original sin does not apply to them because they're God's chosen people. He protects them, and, and he... He he doesn't worry about that with them. It's the rest of us that were born into sin and God's mad at us until we repent and get washed in the blood. You know, we're alienated from God. We have no connection with God because we're not part of the chosen people. So that ties into elitism, meaning if you're not part of the the, the elite group, you you don't profit from the benefits and 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 all those type of things because you're not part of the elite group. You can you can have some of the benefits once you go through all the steps, but outside of that, yeah, 
So these are the two viewpoints in the church. Do either one of them sound conducive and scriptural to either one of you all? That doesn't to me. <laughs> okay. So, Sword 21. And Sister Beth, can you read verse 105 and 106, please? What'd you say? Okay, hold on, I'm getting there. Um, 105, and verily, we have written in the scripture after the reminder, my righteous slaves will inherit the earth. And 106, lo, there is a plain statement for folk who are devout. Okay, so God says this is a plain statement that his righteous slaves shall do what? Inherit the earth. Um, I want you to go over to Psalms 37 now. Now, in another translation or another way to say uh, what was just said, God states that... um, it was written in the scriptures that his righteous servant shall inherit the earth. So if it's in the Quran that it was written in the scriptures, that means that we should be able to go back to the Bible and then find this statement about righteous slaves or righteous people inheriting the earth. So in Psalm 37, let me get there myself. hmm I'm sorry, my mouth just <laughs> had issues. Okay, Psalm 37. And we're going to look at verse... Let's start at verse 10. And in verse 10, it states, For a little while, for yet a little while, and the wicked shall not be. Yea, thou shalt diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Okay, so this is saying the same thing that we read over in the crowd, but now I want you to jump down to verse uh, 29. Sister Beth, just read verse 29 for me, please. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell therein forever. The mouth of the righteous... Oh, sorry, I can stop there. You're good. You can stop there. Um, So what I'm showing you is is that, once again, the translators, if if we go back up to verse 11, and just for for fun, uh, uh, um, Beth, tell me what the... Lexicon says, don't give me the definition, just tell me the Hebrew word for the word earth there. Eris. Eris. Okay, so let's go back down to verse 29, where it says land. And tell me what that lexicon word says. 
Yes. Okay. So the same word, but two different English ways of explaining it. So the actual word that should be used is land. So if we go back to the Quran where Allah says, my righteous slaves shall inherit the earth, but what should actually be there is land. So the land that God is talking about is not the entirety of the earth. If that was the case, then we have some questions to ask. Because we can't deny that there are righteous people in the earth. Yes? As of today, there are upright people. Not saying perfect, but there are people who truly love God. They are striving to do what God has asked them to do. And, and they're serious about their walk with God. Righteous people. So if the righteous are supposed to inherit the land, there's a problem because it appears in today's time the wicked elite have control over the land if, if we're dealing with the entire earth, okay? So we if we eliminate the idea that God is talking about the entire earth and just deal with the land, and the land that's being referred to here is the holy land. Now, in today's Christian, Christian world, when we refer to the Holy Land, we seem to only reference Jerusalem. But the Holy Land is a very massive land that extends from Jerusalem down through Euphrates, down towards Saudi Arabia. Uh, so it's a massive land, plot of land. The point is, God tells us clearly who the land belongs to. It belongs to his righteous slaves. So we see this conflict right now going on about this land. Christian America seems to side with Zionist Jews who say the land is rightfully theirs. And therefore, the, the genocide and the execution of the Arabs that is going on today is justified because it's their land, because God said it's their land. They were the chosen people. They are the chosen people. And it's their land. And this is what is used to justify what's going on in the Middle East right now. But based on Scripture, God did not say that the land belonged to the Jews. God did not say that the land belonged to the Arabs. God said that the land belonged to whoever would be of his righteous slaves. Okay? So let me show you. Um, go to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6. So, as normal, the people in control that we call Zionists, they know these truths, but because they currently have hold of the scriptures and have rewritten the scriptures, which I've shown you in previous classes, they have a habit of changing things around and making things say things that, that's not there. Like here, we, we just read from the Quran. The land is supposed to be for his righteous slaves, yes? Then we go over to the Bible, and we see a very similar thing. It doesn't use the word righteous, but it does say the meek shall inherit the earth, or the meek shall inherit the land. And if you do a study on meekness, meekness will take you back into the word righteous. So anyhow, it's very evident from God's viewpoint that the ones who have absolute right to the land are righteous people. So we rewrote this story, and um, we'll start at 6.1. So 6.1 says, now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, 
that you might do them in the land wherever you go to possess, that you might fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and all his commandments, which I command you, uh, thou and your son and your son's son, all the days of your life, and that thy days may be prolonged. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that you may increase mightily as the Lord God of thy fathers has promised you in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. I'm sorry, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command you this day shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your head and they shall be as frontlets between the eyes. Okay. And then it says, and thou shalt write them. Uh, upon the post of thy house and upon thy gate. And it shall be when the Lord thy God uh, have brought thee unto the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob to give thee great and godly cities which thou buildest not. Uh, jump down to verse... Da, 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 da. Where is it? Where is it? I have a question. Go ahead. Go ahead. So that that kind of takes me back to what I was saying about Abraham. Um, this says, "Oh Israel." Right. So when you say "Oh Israel," aren't you talking about the lineage of Abraham? The lineage of Abraham. The lineage of Abraham, because. Go ahead. Go ahead. So, I mean, that just goes back to my thought about, well, but Abraham was not a a, a Jew. He was not a Jew. Right. He was Christian. So how, how does it jump from, oh, Israel, the, the lineage of Abraham to a Jew? The Jews. Okay. And, and, and that's the purpose of our class. That is the purpose of our class. You hit it right on the head, Sister Samaya. <laughs> so, so think of it this way: in the Bible and in the Quran, more in the Quran than the Bible. In the Quran, you will notice that there are times where Allah addresses the Jews, and then there are times where Allah addresses all children of Israel. And if you pay attention, the way that Allah talks to these two groups is on two different levels. Whenever he makes reference to the Jews, it seems to be a very hostile, uh, wait for it, <laughs> type of two. Wait for it. Or whatever, what you've done, wait for it. Awful punishment for you. But then when it comes to talking to the children of Israel, it appears that in the Quran, Allah seems to constantly remind them, this is not what your fathers did. You're following the path, and this is not what your fathers did. I didn't authorize this. I didn't da 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 So Allah has a lot to say about Jews, 
and Allah has a lot to say about the children of Israel. Now, what most people don't realize is that it comes from Western Christianity because we seem to think that the Jews and the Israelites are the same thing, and they're not. You have to remember Jews come about because when Judah's in Babylon and they come out of Babylon, and, and before I go into this, I, I will explain this. I won't do it tonight. Uh, inshallah, one one class next week, Wednesday or Friday. Um, I'm going to try to pinpoint. We won't be able to go through the whole bloodline. It's too much. <laughs> we would be in class for hours if we went through every family member. But I'm going to try to pinpoint to you the bloodline from Abraham on down and then show you where the bloodline seems to get tainted and then the intermingling with the Ashkenazis and then the Ashkenazis uh, join up with another group and because of their wealth and their power and because the children of Israel didn't have the wealth and the power, and when I say power, I'm talking about military might. They didn't have it like that. The Ashkenazis, along with one, two tribes, Judah and Ephraim, band together and interbreed with these Ashkenazis who then convert to Judaism. Because you got to remember, by the time they come out of Babylon, it's not the religion of Abraham no more. This is something brand new that they done made up. So once the Ashkenazis convert into this with their wealth and their military power along with Judah, they become the the biggest tribe out of the 12. Well, they decided to oust the other 10. So the plan was, was to bring ships over, load them all up, and then disperse them all through the earth so that everybody would forget. It basically separate the family. So that way, in future generations, nobody would know the family. And then we'll take the identity of the entire family and the biggest conspiracy ever, but nobody will ever figure it out. Does that make sense? <laughs> so, so to kind of answer you, Sister Samaya, uh, mm-hmm. this, is how, this is how it goes from children of Israel to the Jews. Because unless one takes the time to really sit down and study the Old Testament history of Israel up to Solomon, then after Solomon's death, the, the nation splitting the way it did, and then Judah becoming aggressive, and then Judah intermingling with uh, other ungodly tribes and then creating his own union and then comes back to fight the other part of the family, which at this point Judah is the strongest because he's got all these allies backing they they get rid of the ten tribes. And that's why till this day we hear so much about the lost ten tribes. And as I always tell Christians to think about, why is it only ten tribes lost? Why were all twelve lost? So that would mean that there's two that still exist. So where are the other ten? And why were only ten kidnapped? That that's that's really a thought to think about. Because if, if if I'm gonna read Abraham's descendants, I'm not just gonna take ten of them. I'm gonna take all of them and hide them. So why why were ten taken but two were untouched? Mm-hmm. And we'll we'll get into that. All right. So um, Deuteronomy. 
I want you to now go over to chapter 9. Yes, I, I had my, my dyslexic moment, so I wrote it backwards. <laughs> so I put I put six nine. It was supposed to be nine. Six. <laughs> God's still working on me, y'all. God's still working on me. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, chapter nine. And um We'll start at verse 4. It says, Speak not thou in thy heart, after the Lord thy God has cast them out before thee, saying, For by righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But for the wickedness of these nations the Lord doeth drive them out from before thee. Not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of thy heart do you go to possess this land. But for the wickedness of the nations, the Lord thy God has, uh, the Lord thy God doeth drive them out from before thee, that he may perform the word which he swore unto his unto your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Now, verse six, I want you to pay very close attention. God seems to say, "Understand therefore that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it." For thy righteousness, for you are stiff-necked people. So, Beth, if you had to interpret in 2021 language what was just said, how would you interpret what was just said? Um, God didn't give this to you. You're whatever stiff-necked means. Stiff, stiff, stiff-necked means you're hard-headed and rebellious. Oh, uh, understand, therefore, that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness, for thou art stiff-necked people. It just means I'm not giving you nothing, you stubborn butthead. That's what I'm hearing. That's literally what I'm hearing. Okay. Sister Samaya, what do you see it saying? Well, first of all, Okay, I had to go back up and see who he was actually speaking to. Right. Hmm. Okay. Well, it, I mean, it, 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 it's plain. It says, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, he's not he's giving this to you to possess it for your uh, uh, for that righteousness. I mean, because they they wasn't right. Okay. So, but notice we just read that God says the land is only for the righteous. They changed it and said that God said, I'm not giving you the land because you're righteous. I'm giving you this land because I want to drive the rest of these people out. Y'all rebellious and evil, so it's not based on your righteousness that I'm doing this. It's what this is saying, but it totally contradicts what we already know God said. Makes sense. Yeah. Okay, so to prove to you that this contradicts the Bible itself. So, if we understand what God is saying, that the land belongs to the righteous, meaning, and as I'm going to show you in a minute, God being the landlord, 
because it's his land. Anyone who's in that land would only be tenants of that land because it's his. And just like any landlord, there's rules. You tear up that man's house, he has the right to evict you. You do the opposite of what that lease says, he has the right to evict you. So when God gives the lease of the land, the lease simply says you have to be a righteous conduct to be here. If you're not going to be in righteous conduct to be here, I'm going to put you out the land. And this is why God warned them that if you don't stop, I'm going to put you out the land. And not only are you going to do this once, you're going to do it twice, and then perhaps you're going to try to come back and do it a third time. And if you come back the third time, you will be met with the same thing. But we know from the crime of the law says if we do it the third time, I'm going to make sure we don't ride this rodeo again. So righteousness seems to be the condition of being in the land. So if that's the case, uh, while I'm talking, go over to Joshua. Chapter okay, 7. I have a question. You have a what? I have a question. I got you. Go ahead. I thought you said you had a confession at first. I was curious. Say, well, wait a minute. Is it? <laughs> no, I'm not Catholic. No, I'm not. It's okay. <laughs> Go ahead. What's I'll tell that part to God. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so back in Deuteronomy nine two, it was talking about the giants of Canaan, right? Right. Is that not who he's talking about pushing out? Yeah, and that's why I said if you read from 1 through 6, what it appears God seems to be saying to Moses to tell the people is, I'm going to give you victory over the people that already live in this land. You're going to drive them out, but I'm not doing it because of your righteousness. I'm right. doing it because so either I'm What you're saying is either one of the two is wrong. Is that what you're saying? Say what you said in a different way. Make sure I understand. Are you saying that either the scripture that says that the land is given to the righteous is either wrong or this one is wrong because it was given to them not because of righteousness? Right. Well, what I'm saying is they changed this in this rewritten, rewritten, supposed to be Torah. They changed it because in the original Torah, the same thing that Allah says in the Quran. It was in the Torah, and that's what I'm getting ready to prove to you here in just a minute. But they took the book, and they changed it, and put that the the condition is not based on righteousness. And the reason they changed it is because they know that they're not righteous. Okay? So so I I, I get called anti-Semitic for this a lot, but history is history. It is the Jews, really who is responsible mainly for what we call today the Atlantic, uh, uh, the transatlantic slave trade. Even though, yes, Mm -hmm. we know about Willie Lynch and all the white people who were slave masters and all that, but if we don't study the history of what a slave master was, we don't get it. Mm -hmm. So it was the Jews who were financing the slave trade. It was the Jews who was financing the boats because they were making a, a big trumpet change off of this industry. So once God put an end to this, 
they turned around and put us right back into slavery. And when I say us, I'm not just referring to black people. I'm talking about humanity because we now live in a system of slavery that's based on interest. Now, I won't teach on interest tonight, but I will bring up that all through the Bible, God said over and over and over again, interest was a sin to him. It is an abomination to him to charge people interest. It's ungodly. So now we live in a system that's based on interest. If you go to get a house and you don't have the type of credit that they think you should have, if they're grateful enough to give you the loan for the house, they tack on interest almost like it's a penalty to you because you don't have the level of credit that they want you to have, and now you're in debt and enslaved to them with this interest. Make sense what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So the same slave masters who ran the slave trade before with ships are the same slave masters today. And when I say the same, I don't mean the same people. I mean their bloodline, their generation, it, they're still running the slave trade. It's just instead of whips and chains, it's, it's, it's interest. It's money. You go buy a new car. They tack on interest to it. So you're not just paying for the car. You pay the car plus. If you ever go borrow money from the bank, they'll they give you the money you asked for, but paying it back, you're paying back more than what you actually borrowed. And if we really step back and think of this system of interest, it's a pyramid scam. That's like me going to Tina and asking Tina, can I borrow $10? And she says yes. So then when I go to pay Tina back, she charges me interest to pay her back. So not only am I paying her $10 back, but I'm paying her the extra 20 on top of it for the interest for letting her letting her let me borrow $10. So I borrowed 10 but I paid back 30 That's not fair. I have a question. Go ahead. So <laughs> that parable about um, what was it the, the I think it was called tenses or something like that where that the the master went away and before he left he gave uh, three of his uh, slaves or whatever um, money. I guess he was expecting a return on his money. One right. one didn't do anything with it. The other one invested, and, did, and then the the other one did something else. But right. The whole point was, um, I think the one who did nothing was condemned. Correct. Because he, he could have brought in a profit. So is that another um, added? Uh, added story to the Bible. I mean, if they're teaching in the Bible that that's what you should do, and that's how you get a uh, profit, how does that fit? Well, uh, take that, and then go to the other scripture that where Jesus talks about um, the woman who gave her last coin and. The, the, the Pharisees got angry about it, and Jesus basically told them because she gave 
what she had from her heart. Her offer would be accepted over there because they gave – I can't remember exactly how he worded it, but he basically words it in a way where one gave from the heart, one gave from uh, – uh, uh, he basically describes because they were in the position where they were bringing in money to themselves that it didn't hurt them to give versus the woman who didn't have an investment or was charging people some type of interest where she was making money off people, and she gave her last. And Jesus compares the two and asks the question, which which one of these two offerings is going to be more readily received by God? The one who actually really did sacrifice something or the one who really just gave something just because they want to be seen? Um, I'll have to study that one, Theta, before I give you a yes or no answer to see if it's an uh, interpolation into the scripture. Because as of right now, I don't know because I've never really looked into it to see if that one is added or not. But I can tell you this, based on Jesus' teaching concerning their money ways, because remember, he went in and threw the tables over from the money changers. So it's very evident that Jesus did not agree with their money practices. So then to turn around and teach a lesson about money practices that will kind of con contradict the character of Jesus that you see throughout the Bible. But for me to give a definite yes that was added, let me let me look at it, and then I'll come back to that question. Is that okay? Sure. Um, sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm, I'm just okay. because it doesn't fit. I got you. And that's what I'm saying. It doesn't fit, but I don't want to tell you, yeah, that was added, and then I go look it up and realize it is in the old manuscript, whatever, whatever. So I'll, I'll look into it, and I'll come back to that. Okay, okay, so Joshua 7. So we're dealing with the subject of righteousness being the condition that God gave the people. In other words, if you were righteous, you were in good standing. If you chose not to be righteous, you 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 are now you were no longer in good standing. So, um, verse one of Joshua seven says, "But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmi, however you say that day, the son of Zebedee, the son of Zerah." of the tribe of Judah took up the accursed thing and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. Stop there. Cause we're not going to read this whole thing. So I'll tell you what the accursed thing is that God's talking about. Uh, Joshua was leading a campaign. This is during the time of them conquering Jericho and them wiping out the children of Anak. They were fighting against the Nephilim. Well, one particular city that they come into AI was a wealthy city, and God had give, given Joshua clear orders that whenever they went to these Nephilim cities, destroy it all. Don't take anything. So if you remember, the same situation happens with Saul in the Bible, where Saul was told to go to this Nephilim city and destroy it all. But if you remember in the Bible, it seems to depict Saul brought back some women, and then Saul brought back some uh, some sheep. Uh, um, so Joshua is commanded to take his army and go into this city, Ai, and annihilate it. So when they go to the war, one of the men decides to, while the battle's going on, he decides to go get some of the treasure. 
and he takes the treasure home, and he buries it. And then he comes back to the fight like didn't nothing happen. So here's what happens. Jump down to verse 6. Well, let's start at verse 4. Verse 4. Verse 4 says, So there went up there of the people about 3,000 men, and they fled before the men of Ai. So when they went up to fight Ai, now I want to paint this out. Up until Ai, as long as the children of Israel were doing what God said to do, every battle they fought, God was with them. And they were winning victories left and right to the point that people in the region feared Joshua. If you remember uh, when Joshua got to Jericho, there was a woman named Rahab in the story. And if I remember right, Rahab seems to be a prostitute or something of that nature. And she she's the one who takes Joshua and the men in and hides them. Y'all remember this story that I'm talking about? Yes. Okay, so when the soldiers come looking for Joshua and the men, she she basically causes a distraction and says, oh, yeah, I saw him run that way. So they leave the house and run. She opens the, 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 the secret trap door and lets Joshua nail them out, and Joshua thanks her. And basically asked her, you know, what can we do to repay you? And she said, she said, um, if you go back and read it, she tells Joshua, she says, uh, my people, the region fears you because of your God that's with you. Because we recognize that everywhere you go to fight, your God seems to fight with you and fight for you. And we're, we're terrified. And she said, so when you come to take the city, and she even tells me, we already, I already know you're going to take the city because your God is with you. And she basically begins to detail to Joshua that she believes in his God and so on and so on and so on. But the, she asks, when you come, I'm going to tie this red string on the outside of my house so you know it's me. Please tell your men, don't, 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 don't burn down my house. Don't kill me. Don't kill my family. And out of respect for the favor that she did for Joshua, when they take over the city and they see the house with the string on it, Joshua gives the command, don't don't bother that lady. And that's why Rahab's story is in, in, in the scripture because, yeah, I won't get into Rahab right now. But I'm just showing you how in the Bible, when Joshua was on his campaign, it's evident from the Bible that the people feared Joshua, not because of Joshua's might, but because they recognized that no matter where these people went to fight, it seemed like there was some type of supernatural force that was with them and was helping them win. So they won all the way up until this battle. So back to verse 4. It says it's uh, about 3,000 men, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai smote of them about thirty and six men, for they chased them from before the gate even unto Shebron, and smote them in going down, wherefore the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Joshua tore his clothes, fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord until the eventide. He and the elders of Israel uh, put, on, put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord, wherefore hast thou at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would to God we have been content and dwelt on the other side of Jordan. 
oh, Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of this and shall environ us round and cut off our name from the earth. And what, uh, and what wilt thou do unto thy great name? And the Lord said unto Joshua, Get thee up wherefore uh, you lieth on your face. Now God explains. Israel has sinned. And they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them, for they have even taken the accursed thing and have also stolen and disassembled also, and they have put it even among their own stuff. So this is making reference to the part of the story I told you. Because at this part, Joshua doesn't know what happened. But if you finish reading the story in your own time, Joshua calls all the elders together and basically says, okay, the Lord has guided me that the reason we lost the battle is because one of y'all did something real stupid. So you need to come on and fess up now. Bring me whatever you stole, because until this is rectified, God's not going to give us the victory. So the next verse says, Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you anymore, except you destroy the accursed from among you. Up, sanctify the people, and say, Sanctify yourselves against to tomorrow, for thus saith the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in the midst of you. O Israel, thou canst not stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. So this, read the rest of it. Joshua gets everybody together, and then they find out that this young man there in the fight went and stole some stuff that God told him not to touch. Point I'm bringing this out for is. If God would tell them in Deuteronomy that I'm not doing this because you're righteous, I'm only doing this because I need to use you to destroy these people because I'm sick of them, then what sense does it make for God now to not let them win the victory because they did something unrighteous? Make this what I'm what I'm putting on the table. Because this yeah. would kind of be a double. This would be a double standard to say. It's not based on your righteousness that I'm giving you the land, but then when I'm on the campaign to take the land, because we did something wrong, God now stops the, the victory until we fix what we did wrong. Mm -hmm. So this is what I mean by proof that something's been changed, because either we accept that God seems to be wishy-washy where one minute is one thing, and then the next minute is another, or we realize, again, the scriptures have been painted and played with. So in, in, in proof, God made it clear that righteousness was what was needed. Now, here are the conditions. Go to Deuteronomy 28. So the conditions for the land. Now, a lot of church hate to talk about this because when you start talking about God and conditions, the church seems to take conditions as a means of legalism. That's not grace. God doesn't base things on conditions. God is unconditional. He loves you irregardless. And that's true to a degree, but at the same time, we all know that there are things just in, and I won't even say in the Quran, 
just in the Bible alone that God has asked the believer to do in order to say you're a believer. So if there are things that I have to do, that's conditions. Doesn't mean that if I don't meet the conditions, God don't love me no more, but there are conditions. Okay, that's, that's any relationship you, you get involved in. Human, whatever, there's conditions. If you mistreat me and talk to me crazy and treat me that that that's a that's un, no, there's 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 okay, Sister Samaya, as 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 a woman, if you married a man and he treated you like crap, would you still love him unconditionally? <laughs> if he treated you like crap, <laughs> he he put his hands on you. He 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 stay out all night. He got three or four different girlfriends on top of being married to you. Are you gonna continue no. to love him unconditionally? No, no, because he doesn't respect me if he's doing all that. <laughs> Beth Beth, you have the same viewpoint on that? <laughs> I was I have to agree and just yeah, that's that's I agree. Hey, I'm over here crowd of laughing because both of y'all just started laughing before y'all answered the question. Like, so what's, what's going on? I'll play. Excuse me, if I hear you that many people, I'm not going to be. No, this is recorded. I better shut up. <laughs> okay. So, Deuteronomy 28, verse 1 states, and it shall come to pass if you hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all his commandments which I command you this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth. So, in verse 1, Beth, in your understanding of what conditions are, does verse 1 set conditions? Did you mute yourself? I did. I really did. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yes, it's completely conditional. Okay. So these are conditions. If you do this, this is what happens. So all these blessings will come on you. Now, we're going to read through some of this tonight. I won't break it down. You'll notice some things. We'll break it down in, 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 in uh, uh, next week's class. Uh, all these blessings shall come up on you and overtake you if you will hearken unto the voice of the Lord your, your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of thy body and the fruit of thy ground and the fruit of thy cattle and the increase of thy kind, and the flocks of thy sheep. Blessed shall be thy basket and thy store. Blessed shalt thou be when you come in. Blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord shall call all uh, your enemies that rise up against you to be smitten before thy face. They shall not. They shall come out against thee in one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses 
and and in all that thou settlest thy hand unto, and he shall bless you in the land which the Lord thy God giveth you. And the Lord shall establish you a holy people unto himself, as he has sworn unto you. If you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his way, and all the people of the earth shall see that you are called by my name, by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. Okay? So now let's jump over to verse 15. So in verse 15, it says, but if it comes to pass that you will not hearken to the voice of the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you this day, all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. So, we read, if you do this, these are the good things that are going to happen to you and your descendants. But now we're going to look at the bad things. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the fruit of your land, the increase of your kind, uh, the flocks of thy sheep. Cursed shalt thou be when thou cometh in and Cursed will you be when you go out. The Lord shall send upon thee cursing, vexation, and rebuke, and all that thou settest thy hand unto for to do, until you be destroyed, and until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of thy doings whereby thou hast forsaken me. The Lord shall make the pestilence cleave unto you uh, until he hath consumed you from off the land, Rather thou goest to possess. So we're still talking about the land here. Okay, jump down to verse 29. Verse 29 says, And you will grope at noonday as the blind gropeth in darkness. You will not prosper in your ways, and you shall be only oppressed and spoiled evermore, and no man will save you. You shall be trothed a wife, and another man will lie with her. You shall build a house, and you will not dwell therein. You will plant vineyards, and shall not gather the grapes thereof. Your ox shall be slain before your eyes, and you will not eat thereof. Your donkey shall be violently taken away from before thy face, and shall not be restored from you. Be, be restored to you. Uh, your sheep shall be given to your enemies, and thou shalt have none to rescue them. Your sons and your daughters shall be given unto another people, and your eyes shall look and fail with longing for them all the day long, and there shall be no might in thy hand. The fruit of thy land and all thy labor shall a nation which thou knowest not eat up, and thou shalt be the only oppressed and crushed away. Go down to verse 36. The Lord shall bring thee and your king, which thou shalt set over thee, unto a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you will serve other gods of wood and stone, and you shall become an astonishment, a proverb, a byword among all nations where the Lord shall lead you. They shall carry, thou shalt carry much seed into the field, and thou shalt gather but little, for the locusts shall consume it. 
You will plant vineyards and dress them, but you will neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worms shall eat them. Thou shalt have olive trees throughout thy coast, but thou shalt not anoint thyself with oil, for thy, oil, for thy olive shall cast his fruit. You will beget sons and daughters, but shall not enjoy them, for they shall go into captivity. Okay, jump down to verse 45. So in verse 45 it says, Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and shall pursue you and overtake you till you be destroyed because you hearken not to the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes and uh, uh, which he commanded you. And they shall be upon you for a sign and a wonder and upon thy seed forever. Because thou servest not the Lord thy God with joyfulness and gladness of heart for the abundance of all things. Therefore shalt thou serve your enemies, which the Lord shall send against thee in hunger and thirst and nakedness and in want of all things. And he shall put a yoke of iron upon your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord shall bring a nation against thee from afar, which... I'm sorry, the, the Lord shall bring a nation against thee from far, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose tongue you do not understand, a nation of fierce continents which shall not regard the person of old, nor show the favor to the young. As I said, I won't break these, I was about to say ayats, but I won't break these verses down right now. We'll come back to explain them. Uh, Sister Beth, what does this sound like to you? What is, what, by reading this, what does it sound like God was demonstrating or explaining, should I say? You on mute again? Sister Samaya, are you there? I am. So, Beth, did we lose you? Okay, Sister Samaya, what does it sound like to you? Sound like uh, what it says, a curse. <laughs> got you. A very, I got a you. very, very detailed curse. I mean, it takes your imagination in every which way. Um, it, it can go. Now, concerning the chosen people that are in Israel right now, can you remember, can you think of anything in history that would match the description that they went through of anything that we just read? Now, keep in mind, these are the same people that told Jesus, we have never been in bondage to anybody. We're Abraham's seed, but we ain't never been abolished to nobody. These are the same group of people that, that seem to be over there today. So based on the prophecy that you just saw and read, do you remember anything in history that they went through any of this? No. Mm -mm. But, as I said, I won't go uh, into it tonight. 
the one group of people that have seemed to gone through this are people of color. Right. Exactly. So even if we deal with the chosen people, it would now define that who we think would be the chosen people must not really be the chosen people, and that the chosen people, if we're going to use that terminology, are a whole different group of people. And it would appear church got it backwards. Now, the one thing I'm going to show you real quick, I'm going to send you guys something real quick, is if you notice, uh, God brings up a nation that's going to come as swift as an eagle. Now, throughout the Old Testament, when God talks about this nation coming, he always seems to prepare this nation to an eagle. And if you look at what I just sent you, the eagle, you find that the eagle has not just been in America, but you see that it's the Holy Roman Empire. You see that uh, Paris uses it. You see that the Nazis use it. You see that present-day Germany uses it. Uh, in the middle there, you see the double-headed eagle, which I'll get back to in just a minute. I mean, you look through all this, it, it appears that there is a group of people who seem to identify with this eagle. And in further study, and we'll get to it, it just deals with the European nations. So the European nation seems to enjoy this, this eagle. Now, the reason why for that comes to this. It ties back into the subject that I keep bringing up of Freemasonry. Freemasonry, which was started as a, uh, uh, uh official organization in Europe, and this is why the, the ego is constantly used. All right, go over to Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7. So I'm sorry, can you, um, why, why the ego again? The the eagle because it ties into Freemasonry. Okay, I, I and I that, said, but, but why? What? Okay. Will you try to wrap your head around? Is it the symbolism, or is it uh, uh, because I saw on one of these it made reference to Egyptian deity, but. It, it's, it's, it's symbolism, but it deals with so, – so today we call this bird on our dollar bill an eagle. But if you backtrack the history of America and the founding fathers of why they chose this particular seal that goes all the way back to Egypt, from Egypt is in Europe, from Europe it starts with the secret societies um, – it is symbolism, and the, and the real – it's not an eagle. It's actually a phoenix. Yeah. And if you understand the phoenix, the phoenix is the bird that can destroy itself only to be reborn as 
something new. So in other words, this symbol, as you see, the Nazis use it, present-day Germany uses it. it. It deals with this particular group of people who have a viewpoint that in order to create a new world, they are hell-bent on destroying our current world in hopes of a new world that they will be over and control with absolute dominancy. Does that, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so you have to remember, America was started by Europeans. Yes. So they used the very symbol that they already knew, which was this symbol, which has been used for a long time to kind of mark, uh, if I could call it a family crest, to make it make more sense. You know how certain families have a particular symbol that identifies who they are. Mm-hmm. Now, unless you're part, unless you're part of that family, you would just see the eagle and wouldn't quite know what we see. But if you're part of that family, you know very clearly what it's saying and why the why why it hangs over a nation. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Deuteronomy seven. Let me get there. And Sister Beth is still with us and says, I don't know, I don't know if she stepped away for a minute or what. (laughs) Okay, so Deuteronomy 7, and we'll look at verse 6. So in verse 6, it says, For you are a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God has chosen you to be a special people unto himself above all the people that are upon the face of the earth. So since so my reading that, does that seem to imply that Jews are God's chosen people? Um, but is he talking to Jews? Is he talking to Jews? In this scripture, he's talking to Israel, who we call Jews today. So I'm playing devil's advocate right now. We're going to say that this is talking, that we know this is talking to the children of Israel. Because if you go back up to verse uh, verse 1, when the Lord your God shall bring you into the land, whether thou goest to possess. So by that statement, we know that it's in reference to the children of Israel who we now today call Jews. So then based on that one verse where he says what he says, is he saying, um, 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 is he saying that Jews are God's chosen people? Well, it says, uh, the Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. I would say that that would mean the same thing as a chosen people. Okay. Okay, so notice the part where it says, you are a holy people unto the Lord. Mm-hmm. 
So to make sense out of why God keeps saying this, and then we'll come back to this. Go back to Exodus real quick. <laughs> Exodus 19. So how do we reconcile a holy people with a stiff-necked people? Right on. <laughs> right on. Right on. So I guess either at one point they were they were holy, and then one day they decided to rebel. Now the part that I didn't delve into, and that's why I said I'll come back to it, is when we read through Deuteronomy twenty-eight. That does not seem to describe the group of people that we are currently calling the Jews today. But it does seem to describe a group of people who went through 400 plus something years of slavery with iron chains around the neck and on the ankles and all that we just read uh, that went through. So if we, if I play devil's advocate for a minute and say let's forget Jews for a moment and deal with Israel. And you have to remember Israel became a nation because of all the, the, the descendants that kept coming about. You know, Jacob had 12 sons. And out of those 12 sons, they took wives. And each son had children. The no children had children. And the no children had children. And then they became their own little nation. But when we take away the idea that we have today about the Jews that we see over there in the land today being this group of people who do not fit these prophecies, then when you get to the part of Israel being dispersed all around the world, the story starts to make a little bit more sense that we're not talking about the group that's over there today. Matter of fact, one thing I've been pointing out to Christians when it comes to the Jews in the Holy Land, I showed them the prophecy in the Old Testament, where God does talk about a return to the Holy Land. But one thing he brings up is when Israel, he doesn't say Jews, but he says when Israel returns to his rightful place, that there will be complete peace throughout the entire region. So, according to what we understand today, the Jews returned back to Israel in 19, what, 46, 47. It's now 2021. And if my history serves me right, there has not been a day of peace over there since those people set foot on the ground over there. So if God says when Israel was to go back, there would be peace, but yet when these people got there, there's no peace, the two don't match. Right. So that would mean that who we think are Jews, a.k.a. Israel, and we have absolute proof in Revelation 3, verse 9, where it says, those who say that they are Jews, but they are not, but they are of the synagogue of Satan. So even in the Bible, it describes a group of people who pretend to be the nation of Israel, but in reality, they're not the nation of Israel, but they're of the synagogue of Satan pretending to be something that they're not. So that's why I tell people when we argue this matter, when we argue the facts, you, have, you therefore then have to argue this book that clearly says there's a group of people that seem to say that they're something that they're not, but they're actually from the devil. Now, 
again, this sounds real anti-Semitic, but when you look at history for what it is, the people that possess this land right now, as we call Ashkenazis, who follow Talmud and all these weird ritualistic practices, they worship Moloch, they, you know, they, 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 they serve a god named Jehovah, and and I don't have to go through the history of what I've already gone through in classes about these people, but you get my point. This, 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 these people do not follow Prophet Moses. They do not worship the God of Moses. They worship something else, and God calls it out clearly in the Bible, Moloch. But for this saying, we're, we're told anti-Semitic. All right, Exodus 19, verse 5, says, Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for the earth is mine. So in verse 5, does it seem to say that God is saying chosen people? um, Well, yeah. Uh, if If you call a peculiar people a peculiar I would have to look that word up, but it does sound like it, they're special. And like it says, unto me above all people. Right. But what does this it, mean? But would this mean that this peculiar people would outrank everybody else? Meaning this, let me say it a different way. I love you and nobody else. Would it appear that that's what's being said? No, because it says, for all the earth is mine. Right. Um, But the other thing, too, is when you say above, that doesn't mean that uh, anything below is is null and void. You know what I mean? I mean, I don't think one out, out does another in that regard. But... When you say peculiar treasure, it does lend to the idea of being special. Okay. So let's do this. We can put on the table a special people to God. question is, is what was unique? What was special about these people? And so instead of looking at it in the way that Western Christianity has taught us, chosen meaning they're separate from everybody else, and no matter what, what they do, it don't matter because they get special privileges that don't nobody else get. Instead of looking at it that way, look, go ahead. But but isn't this relative to the condition that's given, if and then? Say what you just said in a different way. <laughs> <laughs> well, since if you obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you will be or shall be a So that's conditional. Yeah, we have to meet those conditions in order to be that. Right. So let's play devil's advocate. If the people that are being referred to are the people that we see over there today, then something's wrong with this picture because, like you just brought up, this is conditional. 
And it's very clear that they have not met the conditions. So if they've not met the conditions, then therefore you're no longer the chosen. That's why I said I'm being devil's advocate right now. But now when we put the right people in perspective, which, like I said, I'll dig into who the right people are in the next class, but when you put the right people into perspective and the condition still stands, if you obey me, you should be peculiar. Now, here's what I want to point out, though. You should be uh, a peculiar treasure unto me above all people for all the earth is mine. Verse 6 says, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak to the children of Israel. So what made them peculiar was the fact that they were a holy nation. What made them different and unique from all the other peoples of the world at that time was, you have to remember, this is at a time where Nephilim are running around. This is at a time where... Uh, uh, people are worshiping jinn, and there's just all kinds of abominations and child sacrifice and all kind of crazy stuff is going. So God told these people, don't do that. Don't be like those people. Don't kill your kids. Don't worship jinn and demons. And, and, and so that's what makes – okay, let me say it this way. If the more we strive to live a holy life, within ourselves, and we step out into this current world, are we not different? Are we not peculiar? Because we don't do what everybody else does. We don't eat what everybody else eats. We don't touch the things that everybody else is touching. Does that not put us in the the category of being peculiar, different? It does. Now, if you look up peculiar in dictionary, it comes back with several definitions. And if one of them, if I remember right, um, it doesn't say weird. I'm just going to use the word weird. It, it, mm-hmm. it, 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 it brings up strange, different, or just or I'm, I'm going to use my term weird. So when we bring that to our time today, so so they say Tina, let's do this, let's do that. Uh yeah, I don't I don't wanna do that. I don't I don't do those type of things. Then you're weird to you're weird to everybody. Right. You're weird to everybody. Like I perfect example. People say What what's your uh what's your Instagram? What's your Instagram? I don't I don't have Instagram. Well what's your this, what's your that? You got tweet? I ain't got tweet. You got this. I ain't got. I don't. I don't. I don't deal with social media. And then they look at you like you're like you're foreign, or you're weird, you alien. You don't. You don't deal with social media like no, no, no. <laughs> so you get what I'm saying. There are times even in our life today that if we don't do what everybody else is doing, we're different. We're weird. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So if we look at Israel as far as the chosen, not chosen as though God alienated them and hated everybody else, but chosen because they were different in the way they lived their life compared to everybody else at that time because they weren't allowed to eat all the foods that everybody else was eating. They weren't allowed to participate in all the parties and the sacrifices that everybody else found as common practice there in those days. So the rest of the nations looked at these people as weird. Make sense what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so go over to Deuteronomy 14. So in Deuteronomy, the 14th chapter, we will look at verse 1. You are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourself. You shall not make any baldness between your eyes for the dead. You are a holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. So again, do you see the context of what's making these people different from everybody else that God will say, I chose you to be a special treasure to me. You're living a life that nobody else on earth at this time is living. You're doing something that no other nation is doing. One, you're a kingdom of priests to me, so you worship and serve only me. Or of the other nations who were worshiping multiple gods because of the jinn mingling at that time with humans that we know from the Quran, the Hebrew Israelites weren't allowed to do that. It was a common practice. So we're, we're starting to see history repeat itself again because now as, as we're getting closer and closer to them trying to change religion and all this other stuff, those who go against the grain – you know what? I won't even use religion. Let's just use COVID for the example. Those of us who don't have vaccinations, we're weird to the people who have vaccinations. We're different. We're troublemakers. We're outsiders, outcasts, because you ain't got the shot yet. So instead of looking at this word chosen in the sense of how the church has made it seem or how the Zion has made the church see it so that we could put Zionism at the top. And and the reason why Zionists taught it this way, it was a brainwashing. Because by the Western church believing that these are God's chosen people, and as Sister Beth said, no matter what they do, they're saved, then the massacre of what we're seeing, the church backs it because these are God's chosen people. All the craziness that these people do with the controlling interest with the banks and all the media and all the they're God's chosen people. And then it's gotten so bad that if you say anything against these people, you are now the devil because you're speaking against God's chosen people. So anybody who even stands up and challenges Zionism is instantly shot down or made to be quiet in some way, sometimes to the point of assassination if you don't stop. Uh and it's all to uphold these people's actions that totally contradict anything a believer would understand as righteousness. But because of God's chosen people, we bypass their behavior. So what makes them chosen is not the fact that God is saying, you're above everybody else and I hate the world. I hate the rest of the world. Because, you know, I don't, and I'm pretty sure both of you all heard this, that uh, uh, and I said it a little bit earlier, but I just said it in a different way than what I'm get, getting ready to say now. And, and what the church teaches is, is the only reason you and I got salvation was because Israel 
rebelled against God. Outside of that, we would have never been saved because God didn't love nobody else but Israel. Have you ever heard that, Sister Samaya? No, I I can't say that I have. Okay. Sister Beth, you ever heard it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, not quite so bluntly, but in roundabouts, yeah, I've heard it. Okay. Okay. So go over to go to Sword Chapter Two. I'm going to show you something from the Quran, and we're almost finished here. Sword chapter 2. And we're going to look at verse 47. So in verse 47 of Sword 2, you find these words. O children of Israel... Remember my favor that I bestowed upon you and that I preferred you over others. I don't like that translation. Hold on, let me let me get a different translation. Mm-hmm. What was that? What is your say, Sister Samaya? What? Um, that was two forty seven. I asked you while I'm getting mine up, what what does your translation say? It says, O children of Israel, remember my favor wherewith I favor you and how I prefer you to all creatures. Okay. So if this says Israel is God's chosen people above everybody else and he don't love nobody else but Israel, or is it saying that God told Israel... I preferred you above all creatures. But that the might latter. sound like a trick question. That might sound like a trick yeah. question. No, the latter. Okay. Mm-hmm. So now the next question we have to think about is what was it about these people that God preferred them for? What what was it about the Hebrew Israelites that God preferred them out of anybody he could have picked? And the reason is, if you find out through God's wisdom, they were picked to bring about what has caused history to be what it is today. Without the children of Israel, without, without a Jacob, without a Isaac, without a Abraham, we wouldn't have had the prophets who would have come through that bloodline as they did to give us guidance back to the right way of God. Without this bloodline, we wouldn't have scripture today. Uh, Comment. Go ahead, Sister Sabaya. I caught that. You said Hebrew Israelites. Yes, Mel. Yes, Mel. That's why I said I've tried my hard about to go at that subject tonight. That'll be for next week. And that's why I keep bringing up to identify who these real people are that the Bible's talking about compared to the people that we've been taught that they are. The two groups don't match. Mm-hmm. I mean, just by reading Deuteronomy 28 as we did, that that does not match with the people that are over there in the Holy Land right now. 
but it does match with the people who have been dispersed all through the Americas and all over the world whose ancestors were kidnapped and taken to other lands and treated like animals. Mm-hmm. And this is why, till this day, they don't want us to know who our ancestors were. Because by finding out who our ancestors are, we figure out who we are. We figure out who we are, we get a sense of value about ourselves. And once that mm-hmm. happens to the people of color, that they value themselves, and they value their nationality, no, they you no longer let people do you wrong no more. You know who you are. You know your place in the world. Um, I read a book once, and it was dealing with slavery. Uh, and it, but it, and I can't remember the guy who wrote it, but it made the statement that in order to really break them, one of the main things that had to happen was you had to strip them of all their heritage. You had to strip them of all their nationality. You had to make them feel like they were just strangers in a land that didn't belong, and they had no sense. And and this is why I keep preaching over and over. This is what's wrong with people of color today. And when I say people of color, I'm not just dealing with black people. Dealing with people of color, period. This is what's wrong. When you have no sense of value, you feel like you have nothing to live for. So you just live crazy. Um, Sister Samaya, me and you had talked about this one day, how well, it was in class, but, you know, how in in in, in, in our, our, our family, we didn't keep good records of who was who and who came from what and who did what. We, we, far as most people can go back to is great-grandma. And that's 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 far fetched to few anymore these days. So if we can't backtrack to figure out what you yeah, if we can't backtrack to figure out what type of family I came from, then I'm left with whatever society makes me. And we know how that goes with society makes a person. We 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 know how that goes. Okay. So here again. I'm not saying that these people that were chosen were chosen because he was their favorite and nobody else mattered. No, they were chosen because there was a task that God had in mind that needed to be completed for the future of the earth. And just like me, when God chose me, nobody could do this task but me. When God chose you, Sabaya, nobody could do it. When God chose Beth, nobody could do it. So when God talks about chosen, it's not saying favoritism, but rather it's saying I, there's a purpose. There is a purpose behind your creation, and I want you to fulfill that purpose, so I choose you. I could have chose your neighbor, but I chose you. Now, we all know that if God can choose a person to do the task, it's up to the person to do the task. Mm-hmm. As a chosen man of God, if I choose tomorrow not to walk this path no more and do the total opposite of everything that God has told me to do, that is my right and that is my free will, and God will not stand in my way. But there will be consequences. And in the end, I can't say, oh, why God? Okay? So, so like, uh, uh, go over to chapter 3. Thor chapter 3. 
and we'll look at verse 30. Three. So in verse 33 of chapter 3, it says, Lo, Allah preferred Adam and Noah and the family of Abraham and the family of Imram above all his creatures. So does this now mean that God didn't love the rest of his creatures because he chose these particular people to carry out the task? No. It just means that God saw something in them that he wanted to choose them to carry out this task. Go over to chapter 5. Actually, no, stay in chapter 3. Jump down to verse uh, 76. So in verse 76, it says, well, we'll jump up the verse to get the context of it. Uh, jump up to 74. So in verse 74, it states, He, referred to Allah, selected for his mercy whom he will. Allah is of infinite bounty. Among the people of the scripture, there is he who, if you trust him with a way to treasure, will return it to you. And among them, there is he who, if you trust him with a piece of gold, will not return it to you unless you keep standing over him. Because that is because they say we have no duty to the Gentiles. They speak a lie concerning Allah knowingly. No, but Allah, I'm sorry, but the chosen of Allah is he who fulfilleth his pledge and wars off evil. For lo, Allah loves those who ward off evil. So now we understand from Allah's viewpoint, when he chooses somebody, it's normally people who are doing what he asks them to do. Because if I'm not doing what God's asking me to do, how could he choose me to carry out a task to help other other humans come out their nonsense and their garbage if I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Make sense what I'm saying. So if if I do what I'm supposed to do, and then God chooses me to do the task, not only am I prepared to do the task, but I'm qualified to do the task, and then I'm equipped to do the task, so therefore I'm chosen. doesn't make me better than everybody else. It just means that God saw something in me, and I was ready for it, and I showed him I was ready for it. You have to remember, God says, I do not look at the external part of man. I look at the heart. So a person can say, well, I pray 10 hours a day. Amen. The question is, what is the intention? Are you doing it because you're trying to get the power of the Holy Ghost so you can go out healed and sick and get known and be on big stages so all the big crowds can come see you? Or are you doing it because you simply just want to be in the presence of God? There's a difference. And God knows that difference. Only God knows the difference of who does what and why they do it. Okay, now go over to chapter 5. So in chapter 5, we're just going to look right at verse 20. Chapter 5 and verse 20 states, 
and you can read up further later to get more context. I'm just point these few things out to you. And remember when Moses said unto his people, O oh, my people, remember Allah's favor unto you, how he placed among you prophets, and he made you kings, and he gave you that which he gave not to any of his other creatures. So now I'm just starting to see the um, unfolding of why these people were so special. Because kings and prophets came out of these people, and no other nation had that. Now, we know that God says he sent to every nation a prophet. Yes. But up until that point, all the prophets came from two sons of Abraham. And as Sister Samaya brought up earlier, this goes all the way back to Abraham, who was neither a Jew, nor was he a Christian. But he was one that was righteous and upright. He did not serve anything but God. So he had children in the bloodline, and out of this bloodline, because God preferred Abraham. What was it about Abraham that God preferred? Because at that time of Abraham's time, nobody had that type of devotion. Yeah, I remember this is during the time where people are worshiping Jen and killing their kids and worshiping all other things. Abraham turned his back on his own family to follow this one true God. God picked him. He was chosen. But did that mean that God didn't care about nobody else? Now, here's the trick to this. I'm going to play devil's advocate again. If we say the Jews are God's chosen people, then according to the Bible, the only reason they were chosen was to be a light to the rest of the world to teach us monotheism and the truth of the scriptures. So make that make sense. If you're chosen, but God's task to you is to be the light to the rest of us to bring us to him, how does that make them any better than anybody else besides the fact of the task? Not bloodline, I can't never say that word right, but y'all, ethnicity, help me. (laughs) (laughs) So you you know what I'm trying to say. It's not based on bloodline. It's not based on bloodline being chosen. It was based on the task at hand. Okay? So look over at. Uh, uh, um. Go to Genesis 25. We'll end with that tonight. Genesis 25. So thus far, as you can see that, yes, Israel was God's chosen people. Israel was God's peculiar people, but not in the sense of how the church has made it out to be today. Today, when you talk about Jew, Jew is dealing with bloodline. In order to be a Jew, you have to be born a Jew. You can convert to Judaism, but that doesn't make you a Jew because you converted to Judaism. It makes you a proselyte. A proselyte is a a, a proselyte. And now, here I say proselyte is another way of saying a, a convert. But, if okay, like me, if I was to go and convert to Judaism today, 
and they accepted me. I practiced Judaism because I converted to Judaism, but it doesn't make me a Jew. Because in order to be a Jew, that's only done by birthright. Okay, so it would be the same thing. In order to be a Hebrew Israelite, you would have to be born of one of the Semitic families to be a Hebrew Israelite. So to make sense of this, you got to go back to Abraham. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. They spread out and, and, and have families, and that's the Semitic family there. Then you had the other Semitic son, Ishmael. Ishmael's family spreads out through Africa, and this is the part that you don't hear about a lot in the mosque because they don't go this far about it because all we talk about is the Sunnah. But when you study Ishmael's bloodline from Saudi Arabia, they took um, Islam down into the west coast of Africa, and then Islam began to spread through Africa because of the Ishmaelites that went all through Africa, migrating and marrying into different families and and so so unless one can really sit down with a family tree or something like that it's hard to really pinpoint where we came from there's things that we can figure out to know that yeah we we, we came from a semitic bloodline i can say this people of color who were dispersed throughout the americas came from the semitic family bloodline Unfortunately, the history got jacked up when the Europeans decided to kidnap people and then disperse them and then reset history, and and so on, so on. Um, 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 Sister Beth, correct me if I'm wrong, but did you tell me that in the family tree you just recently did, you found out that you had black people in the family? I know you found out um. that Arabs. In the family, they yeah. go back to Mecca. I think Mecca, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And and I think you said something about uh, black people in the family too, didn't you? We do. Yep. Okay. So, like with Sister Beth, I'm pretty sure Sister Samaya. How much of your family do you know, as far as where where y'all came from? Hmm. Only my mother's mother's mother. Yeah, was she a black lady? Uh, yeah, but they were all of uh, they were mixed. I'm sure they they came from an area of people that were very light skinned. And there were Indians amongst them too. Okay, okay. And, and so this is this is what I meant by it would be interesting if our families, like how the Jewish families do, keep a book, a big thick book of records of who was who, so that when mm -hmm. a child gets old enough to go get that book and go backwards and see where they came from. This is your great, 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 great grandfather. He was this, he was that, he was that. And then he gave, and that would be interesting to, if we all could know exactly where we came from versus mm -hmm. the, the, the not knowing. Yeah. Okay, so 
I'm going to ask this question before we read this scripture. It is clear by the scriptures that we read tonight. One, is Israel, as we call the Hebrew Israelite, God's chosen people? Yes, in the, in the sense that they were chosen for a particular task. No, in the sense that God chose them because he didn't love nobody else, and it was only them, but because they rebelled, God let his standards down to love everybody else in hopes of provoking the one he really wants to love to jealousy so that they could come back to him. That's some stuff that Zionism made up. The reality is that, yes, God chooses people to do tasks. And if I'm chosen to do the task that nobody else can do, that makes me a very peculiar and special person to God because nobody else can do what I do. There's only one me. There's only one of you. And if you're chosen for that task, that makes you very peculiar to God, especially if you're really moving forward to do what God told you to do. So with that said, we also go for it. Okay. I'm having a little bit of a conflict because my understanding was if I am chosen to do a specific task, I don't stop the train if I don't if I choose to not follow through with that task. God will go on to somebody else and somebody else will feel what I was supposed to do. To a degree. To a degree. But there will only be one best. So if God gave you that assignment, yes, he can pick anybody. He can pick the donkey if he wants to do it. But it's not you. Nobody could do the task the way you're going to do it. Yeah. Right. In your personality, in okay. your mm -hmm. thinking, in the way the mind and the program that God put in your soul, nobody else will be able to think and be creative like you. Yes. Somebody else could get the task done, but not the way you would have had you obeyed. Okay, I got you. that clean that up a little bit? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Okay. Yeah, I got you. So, 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 then we have to accept that the people that we call Israel today are either A, not Israel, or be something drastically wrong with this picture. And there's this obscure story in the Bible that we're getting ready to read that paints the picture very clearly of what it is. So I, I want you all to think about something that uh, 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 in in the Quran, in the Quran, Allah makes statements such as, "And we blessed Abraham." And we gave him Ishmael and Isaac and a grandson named Jacob. Correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I'm, I'm reciting the ayat. Blessed Abraham. We gave him Ishmael. We gave him Isaac. And then we even blessed him with a grandson named Jacob. What's missing? Well, there was more than one grandson, and there was more than one son. So, he blessed, well, matter of fact, I mean, he had more than two children, but, I mean, if you're going to talk about generations and 
and and and children down the line uh because wasn't i mean jacob well well, well let me ask this was according to your bible was jacob an only child no and if i'm no. not mistaken he was the one that was the twin that 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 grabbed his brother's or whatever and ended up coming out first or something. Right? I mean, right. Is right. that the right story? Okay. You in the right and story. Why, you ain't doing a Sister Jay High right now. You in the right story. <laughs> okay, and that's why I said, you know, um, he wasn't the, the the only child when he said he, he blessed him with Jacob. is like, well, but Jacob came in a pair. <laughs> right. So we've been told, but here's what I'm proposing. Mm-hmm. Because according to your Bible, the brother named Esau plays a major role in history, along with mm-hmm. Jacob. But why doesn't Allah bring him up? It's like Allah doesn't know nothing about Esau. Esau is never once talked about in the Quran. Oh, yeah, I, didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, Esau's never brought up. God always brings up Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, and then we gave Jacob a son. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, we blessed Abraham. We gave him Isaac and Ishmael, and then we blessed him with a grandson, Jacob. And then to Jacob, we gave 12 sons. So Allah either forgot about the brother Esau, or Esau, as I taught you before, and I think that you might have to jolt your memory, uh, uh, Sister Beth, you weren't participating when I brought this up, but Sister do you remember the night that I taught the class and I said that the story of Esau and Jacob is an interpolation into the scriptures? It was added. Obviously, it slipped my mind. <laughs> <laughs> so the story of Jacob, Esau, is added to scripture. So, um, Beth, what do you remember about the story of Esau? Oh, Esau was the wild donkey one, the the heathen, the one that God hated. If I remember at all correctly, it was the one that uh, was basically just the opposite of Jacob. And let me see. Oh, I might be, as you say, pulling a of uh, a sister jihad, jihad one moment, but was that not the one that sold his soup for inheritance yeah. or something like that? Yeah, he sold his birth. He sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. Yeah, that one I never and, understood. And and this seems to be what the conflict between these two brothers are since that time on is that. Uh, um, you know, you took my birthright, but but the, the the funny part of the story is is that's like that's like Sister Samaya coming to me and saying, um, uh, if you sell me this, I give you that, and I agree. But then three days later, I get mad at her because she took my stuff, but she really didn't take it. I sold it to her. We did an even trade. So what is there to be mad about? Well, but that wasn't that an even mad. trade. That was that wasn't an even trade. It was a trade out of desperation. 
Say, it was, explain what you mean. Explain what you mean. Desperation. Okay, so so if you're starving and you have a bowl of soup, and I'm literally sitting on millions of dollars, and wait, vice versa. If you have the soup, I have a million dollars, but I come to you because I'm starving. I'm dying. My my ribs are showing. I'm about to kill over dead. <laughs> And I'm like, give me the soup and you can have everything. Because at this point, I'm desperate. All I want to do is continue living. And you're like, right bet. I got you. Right. Like, I, I, right. we're, we're switching. Let's, let's do it. So we switch. Right. Right. Okay, now my stomach's full. I'm not near death anymore. But now I'm mad because you got my $8 million worth of estate. All for some soup. Like that's that's well, a that's a deal made in desperation. Right, but at the end of the day, we made a deal. I right. can't help that you decided at the last right. minute that you was hungry, you was willing to give up everything just for my suit, but we made it a fair deal. I give you a million okay, but, you give me a suit. But doesn't it state in contracts and in agreements that you have to be a sound mind and body when making an agreement for the agreement to stick? For the agreement to stand. Sure. Yeah. So you guys, so are you if guys you are if you are on the verge of death <laughs> Yeah, if you're on the verge of death, that is not sound mind and body. That's desperation. Hey, a deal is a deal. Go I, ahead, Tina. <laughs> would like to uh, make comment on that. For one thing, Esau was a hunter. He was nowhere near uh, he was nowhere near that kind of desperation. I think he was to me um, he was willing to do whatever he needed to do for his own self-satisfaction. And if this story was just inserted in there, um, I, I think it was a very petty way of uh, giving away his his inheritance. Uh, but the bottom line is he thought it was worthy of his momentary, momentary self-satisfaction to do that. So to be angry, he should be angry at himself, not at his brother. Uh, yeah, I, obviously, obviously, huh? your birthright. Your he, you got to remember, he sold his birthright. So obviously, his birthright wasn't that important to him. That's right. That's right. Now, now, see, I, I see now, the other side. I think Jacob preyed on weakness. <laughs> I really do. Like, what kind, what kind of brother are you that's like, yeah, give me everything you own and you can have my food? Well, okay, you know so what? now, let's, let's go ahead. Because in the end, Mama helped him uh, bring that into fruition. So, yeah, you you have a you have a very good point there. So, so think of it this way. If if you read the story of Esau, Esau then falls into that category that Sister Beth brought up earlier of, of a narcissist. Yes. Because this dude was a narcissist. Yes. He did everything for himself. 
He even rebelled against Jacob and went and married pagan women. And if you really get down to it, he he according to the 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 the, the story, he dealt with a lot of Nephilim women. And then when he realized that Jacob didn't approve of his lifestyle, he became very jealous of his brother. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. reason the, the Bible depicts his jealousy towards Jacob is because Isaac seems to always approve of Jacob. Anything that Esau says to his daddy Isaac, it always goes to Jacob. Well, Jacob did this, and Jacob did that. And and it seems to depict this story of Esau striving for his daddy's love and his daddy's attention. And when he realizes that Jacob is doing so much better, you have to remember Jacob is the baby brother. Esau is the older brother. But Jacob seems to be the one that gets all the praise and all the glory. And daddy Isaac just don't care about me. And if you read the story, it's pretty crazy how Esau acts. Esau acts like a straight narcissist. Now, the the, the true definition of a narcissist. Um, uh, like, for instance, there's a part in the story where he goes and he marries some Canaanite women. Not a Canaanite woman, Canaanite women. <laughs> and when Isaac disapproves of it, he then, according to the Bible, turns around and goes to his uncle's house and marries his daughter in spite of, to, to basically be spiteful to Jacob, he goes and marries his uncle's daughter. Now, here's, here's, a, here's a trivia question. Who is Esau's uncle? Okay, so... Uh, well, maybe, wait a minute, wait a minute. Maybe it's not his uncle. Maybe it's not his uncle. Okay, wait a minute. Hold on. So Isaac is Jacob's daddy, which would make Isaac granddaddy. So what would that make him? I said uncle, but now that I'm thinking about it, I don't know if that would be his uncle or not. The the, the answer well, is going to be Ishmael. It's going to be Ishmael. Okay. okay. Well, but but that that would be right, though. Because is Ishmael it uncle? is Isaac's brother. I was going to say that because Ishmael is Isaac's brother, so therefore that would be Jacob's uncle. That would, uh, yeah. That would be Esau's great uncle there. Y'all lost me. No, I'm... because Esau and Jacob are brothers, right? Yeah, Esau and Jacob okay. are brothers. Isaac, Isaac. Yeah, you're right. You're right. That's his uncle. That's his uncle. That's his uncle. You're right. I stand corrected. You're 100% right there. Okay. You still lost Beth. You still lost what we just said. (laughs) I literally heard Pig Latin right there. (laughs) Okay. So Isaac and Ishmael are brothers, right? Brothers, yes. Isaac has Jacob. Yes. And Esau, according to the Bible. So that would make Ishmael the uncle. Yes. Okay. So the Bible depicts after he married the Canaanite women and brought them home, Isaac threw a fit about it. He throws a huge fit because you totally rebelled against God, and you went out here and you married these Canaanite women and then had the audacity 
to bring them to my house. So once he sees, once again, his choice seems to pray, make daddy praise Jacob again. To be spiteful, he goes to Uncle Ishmael's house, and then he takes Ishmael's daughter, and then goes and marries her, and then brings her home to be with the other Canaanite women. Yeah, if you read the story of Esau, Esau's wild now. He's just wild and out. And right, but why do I feel for him? <laughs> I really do, and I mean, I, I I feel very passionately about this. Like, we got Jacob, the little mama's boy over here, that gets all the praise for everything he does. Esau can't seem to do nothing right. Jacob's mama's over here helping Jacob, like, secure the gold. Like, yeah, but you remember that part of the story, because Tina brought it up a little bit, that if you go back, the whole still in the birthright, was actually not Jacob's idea, but Jacob's mom's idea. Right. So why are we playing favorites? <laughs> I mean, this, you this favorite You want to talk about it? You want to talk about it? Yes, because I'm feeling like an Esau right now. I'm really feeling like an Esau, and I don't appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> so... So, but here's the key to this. Again, when you find out that the story of Jacob and Esau is actually interpolation into the Bible, what has happened is the Jews that rewrote this book have entered the story of two brothers at odds with each other. And, And I said it was obscure, and here's why. So go to Genesis 25. And if you've ever read this story, I don't know if you've ever paid attention to the details that I'm going to show you real quick. So in Genesis 25, um, we're going to go down to verse 20. 20. 20. Well, we'll start at verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begat Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padaram, the sister to Laban, the Syrian. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord was entreated of him. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled together within her. So now we realize According to this story, Rebecca was barren, meaning she could not get pregnant. And then miraculously, God intervenes as she's got twins. And it says that the 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 the, the children struggled together in her. And she said, "If it be so, why am I thus?" And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb." Paul. If these are Isaac's kids, this would be more descendants of Abraham. Correct? Uh-huh. Right. But yet, the Bible says clearly that these are two different nations. How is that possible? So this sounds like, Sister Samaya, I know you'll remember this. Beth, you, I have not done this lesson with you yet fully. Um, this sounds more like uh, Cain and Abel again. 
It does, yes. Where one is the seed of the serpent and one is a, 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 a true Adamite. So two I nations. I have a question. Go for it. So when it said she implored of the Lord and the Lord, is this the, the actual creator or are we talking about like... Baal? This is Jehovah. This is Jehovah that's being referenced here. Oh. Now, it's okay. going to get deeper. It's going to get deeper why why we know that this was added to Scripture. Okay? And, again, this is why I bring up it's very interesting that God constantly talks about Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, and Jacob all through the Quran and the 12 tribes, but Esau is never once mentioned. So even in the Bible, it says, God says, Esau, my soul hates. So why is God saying he hates Esau, but at the same time, she couldn't have kids, and God seems to, as you just said, give her the miracle of two sons, but I hate it. Yeah, I'll let you get pregnant and have birth, but I hate that baby. Make that make that sense. Makes sense. <laughs> makes no sense at all. So, and the children, I'm sorry, and the Lord said unto her, verse 23, two nations are in your womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. Now, two different nations, two different types of people. How is this possible? And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. And when her days be delivered were fulfilled, when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red all over like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And after that, his brother out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was three score years old when she bare him. In other words, Isaac was about 60 years old. And the boys grew. Now, this is now the story of, of the, what, what we were all just talking about, but we won't read all this, but we'll read some of it. The boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, man of the field. Jacob was a plain man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So you have the Bible seems to depict two brothers, and one parent didn't like one child, but liked the other child, and then vice versa. What kind of family is this? My kind. Um, I'm sorry. I have a comment. <laughs> Hold on, Sister Tina. Hold on, Tina. Did you really just say that, Sister Beth? I did. This, oh, I feel like I'm reading my own family story. This is wild. Oh. Oh. <laughs> okay, go ahead, Sister Sabaya. Um, a couple of things. Um, so if we put this in today's terms, uh, and, and and then you know there's this thread of all kinds of sex stuff in 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 the bible um especially when we're talking about this lord um 
But the only way you can get two different people like that is to have relations with two different people and get pregnant at the same time. Right on. Right on. But 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 do you, do you see now why I say this is a very obscure story when you really read it for what it's saying? Yeah. Uh, Seems to be very the, out of place. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, but you wouldn't. You wouldn't think of those things, though, because you're reading the Bible. Right. You know, that's just not something you would read into the Bible. But the other thing, too, is that this, this the, the Bible in many ways uh, keeps you polarized. You know? Yeah. There's always, there's always like a, uh, it can go one way or the other, and then, and, and then, People depend upon how they view things, choose one way or the other. But, but it, yet, you even have that going on in the Bible. The, like you said, uh, mother like this one, father like that one. Uh, right. That, that, there just seem to be a lot of that going on. That's all right. I'm say. Uh, let, let me let me add one more spin to what you just said. So according to what we just read in verse 28, Isaac loved Esau. So Isaac is the chosen one of God, the promised son. But God tells Isaac, I hate Esau. But Isaac loves Esau. So wouldn't you think that if God hated Esau, Isaac would too? <laughs> so... It, it, it's a very weird story going on where you got two parents, one child seems to be praised over the other, but then when you flip the parents, the other parent doesn't like the other child, so that's your son. Well, that's your son. That ain't nothing my son, that's your son. And if this was a true story, could you imagine how these children would have grown up? in competition with each other all the time because all they're doing is trying to earn the other parent's love because the other parent seems to love the other child more than the other child. Mm -hmm. What, what, a, that, that would be a wow, that's a wild ride right there. And, and it would be from little boys on up to adults that they constantly did this stuff, competing with each other to see who could do it better. Because I'm going to get mama to love me more than she love you. Or I'm going to get daddy to start loving me more than he love you. And if if we be honest, such environments of families like that, it, it causes brothers and sisters to grow up and despise each other. But the root of it will have to go back to the parents. Okay. So Jacob was making some pottage. And Esau came from the field, and he was faint. Here comes Sister Best's point. And Esau said to Jacob, feed me, I pray thee, with that pottage, for I am faint. Therefore, his name was called Edom. So the Edomites that you read about throughout the Bible, who the Edomites then turned into Europeans, or who we call Romans. So I'll get back into this subject next week, where I'm going to show you the Edomites are who you call Europeans today, or Gog and Magog and all this. Uh, 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 his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me this day your birthright. And Esau said, behold, I am at the point to die. 
and what profit is this birthright to me? So, in other words, I'm about to die hunger. Like Beth said, I'm about to die now. I'm so hungry. I don't care about this birthright. What good is the birthright to me if I'm about to be dead? Here is yours. Thank you. Exaggeration. Exaggeration. <laughs> Tina just said, fake news. Fake news. I think, I think Jacob's an opportunist. <laughs> now, now, Beth, I don't know if you know this or not, but Jacob's name, according to the Bible, lexicon means trickster. Manipulator. Uh-huh. Me. And, and this is why they say in the church, and this <laughs> this is why they say in the church that this is why God changed his name from Jacob to Israel to get rid of his old manipulative identity, and now he's going to be on the up and up. As Shakespeare said, arose by any other name. So I so want you to go back up to verse. Verse 25. Mm-hmm. So in verse 25 it says, and the first came out red. So Esau, who then later on becomes the father of the nation of the Edomites, who then become the Europeans over time. Well, before they were Europeans, they were Romans, and then from the Romans, the Europeans. They have a long history, and they've gone by many different names over over time, but this is the Edomites. So, but notice it says he was born red. So, Beth, if you could tell us what the lexicon definition of of red is. You don't have to give us the word, but I want you to give me the strong definition. Adam. Okay, Adam. Adam. Now, keep this in mind because we're going to look at the root etymology in a minute. Adam, and the definition of Adam is what? Uh, red, ready, of man, horse, heifer, garment, water, lentils. Okay, so red, ready, or ruddy. Okay, so it comes from an etymology. And what is the etymology word? Um, well, that one, I'm sorry, that one was Ad, Adam, Admanai. And it came from Adam. Okay. So the root word for red in this lexicon is Adam. And the definition they get for Adam for the root word is what? Uh, to be red. Yeah. Okay. To, to show blood now, plus to turn rosy. Okay. So to show blood in the face. And to turn rosy. So what color are they describing? Red. Read it again. To show blood in the face, flush or turn rosy. So if somebody blushes. When your face turns red. Okay, but in order for your face to turn red, what color are you? Uh, anything relatively pale? Okay. So let me show you what your Bible dictionary says, and then we close with this tonight. Sending you this. This comes from the Bible dictionary. When you get it, let me know you got it, please. I have a question when you get a minute. Go, go for it. Go for it. 
Okay, because I know there's there's always symbolism and synchronicity. There's, this doesn't happen by chance. What right. is the correlation between Esau being red and the suit being red? Um, that's that's one of those this, this obscure story. I don't know what the what the connection between the two are because I never took time to understand why the suit was red. I was more focused on why this baby was born red and the other baby was born with color. How's that happen? How is one baby born? Right. And, and, and it's because I understand what red means to them. And I'm just going to go ahead and say it, and then I'm, we're going to read this together. Red comes back to the word Rudy. Rudy deals with being white. So please oh. explain to me. Abraham was a black man or a man of color. He had two sons who would have came out as children of color. One of his sons now has a son or twins himself, but one of those twins is white. This is my, how that happened. <laughs> so are we talking like Caucasian, like from the Caucasus Mountains, or are okay. we talking Listen. albino? Uh, do, do you, did you get the screenshot I just sent you? Yes. Okay. Read that for me. To be read. Ready. Arab. Um, all that stuff. Once found in Cal, something, uh, Lamentations, I think, 4-7, their princes were whiter than milk. Their body was more ruddy than coral. Okay. Whiteness and ruddiness belong to the description of youthful beauty. Hence, it is a mistake to apply the word that in this place as meaning clear whiteness as Bohart and Hyros and Ludolf in comment something. Okay, stop there. Stop there. So let me explain what, what this is saying. It's saying that Hebrew word that you can't understand what it's saying. What it's uh -huh. saying is, is that the translators, as as you saw, the first word took you back to the root word of Adam. And what they're trying to decide, what they're trying to say is, as a matter of fact, to make this make more sense, and we don't have to turn there, but you can verify it yourself later. If you go back to Genesis chapter uh, uh, one, where it says, "Let us make man." The definition that comes back for man is 119, Adam. But it's not the same Adam of the man in chapter 2. Because the Adam of chapter 1 seems to try to depict Adam as white. And what these scholars are saying is that that's wrong, pretty much, to take this word and try to make it a word about color being white. So our translators basically tried to convince us that Adam was white. And this is why this word Adam is translated as Rudy. Um, that makes sense. Yeah, they're a bunch of liars. Okay, well, go ahead, finish reading it. Um, but those who defended this opinion would hardly have adopted it had they not been rather too desirous to attribute the Hebrew word. The would be Adam. Oh, okay. The signification 
of pearls. Okay, what color are pearls? They're usually white. Okay, so what the Bible Dictionary is trying to tell us is that this Hebrew word that they have chosen is trying to depict whiteness. Now, the scholars are arguing and saying that we shouldn't try to we shouldn't try to use whiteness to define what's being said here, but for whatever reason, the translators did it. So when you understand that the translators are Edomites, which come from this, it starts to make sense. And then recall that these two different nations, one's colored, one's pale, were going to be at odds at each other. And then the story shows how they hate each other, they fight each other, there's this conflict from the womb on out. It's this hidden, obscure story of these racist people, and they put this stuff in the Bible and just put it in such obscure a way that you wouldn't catch it unless you break things down like this. But again, the story of Esau is, is an interpolation into the scripture, and it's all to describe this moment we are in right now and i'll pick it up on wednesday we have a different subject for sunday that's why i say wednesday um we'll pick it up on wednesday of what i mean by edomites so now we'll look at edomites and this is still dealing with the land and jerusalem and solomon's temples all the dots connecting together but yeah does it make sense what I'm showing you here, or do I leave you confused before we hang up tonight? Um, that makes sense. Have you ever noticed or paid attention to this is what this story seems to be trying to depict to us, that two different babies came out of two mm -hmm. different colors, two different nations, and then it clearly defines two different types of people. Right. But who are the red people? I mean. Now, you got to remember, it translated the word red in English. Our English translation said red. But when you go back to the lexicon, red takes you to the word Adam, which mainly which deals fun. with white. Oh, I thought you were saying that they were red, but the translations were trying to say that they were white. No. But it was what I'm saying they is were trying the to say they were white, is, but they were really, I got you. I got yeah. You. Instead of just saying what they really wanted to say, they, they played word games to put the word red there because it's misleading. Because like Tina mm -hmm. said, we're reading the Bible. Nobody would ever think to read a racist story like this in the Bible. But when you break this down, this is an outright racist story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, or, or What'd you say, Tina? Or a sex story, because you're not going to take two of the same people. You're not going to have a man and a woman produce such a difference like that. Now, you know what, though? Uh, <laughs> I have to say. I watched this doc. This uh, it it was like a documentary. Um, it, it was actually a full blown movie uh, about a person who was born white, 
but that was because it, from a, a, a black from black parents, but that was because somewhere in her uh, genealogy there was a white person, and somehow, and it has been known to happen. And this this was in uh, Africa where they had uh, apartheid and the way that they classed their people. They, you know, they had white people, they had colored people, and then they had uh, black people. Um, and uh, this, they, they actually were classified according to their color. And this person, unfortunately, was born to a black couple, but she came out white. She cheated, Tina. She cheated. No. <laughs> I'm playing. Um, I've heard that it's happened. There's a term it's for not, it. It's rare. Yeah, I, and I can't remember what the term was, but I do remember it saying it's a very rare thing that hardly yeah. happens, but... It can happen, yeah. and it's got something to do about the pigmentation and the genes <laughs> and something, something, something. Um, yeah. Now, I'll go with that. And had they put it, put the story that way, get it. But when you put two different nations, two different types of people, one mm-hmm. colored, one not. Yeah, yeah. This, yeah. this, this yeah. has some deeper yeah. meaning to this than just yeah. a child was born with no pigmentation. Right. I get it. So again, all this, this, this part right here will connect a little bit deeper in your minds once we get into the Edom Nights uh, this week coming up, and so. I'll show you the Edomites and, and their history with the children of Israel and the whole um, Judah, Judah, Edomites, Ashkenazis. It's, 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 it's not just one group that's particip- that participated in this. It's a major group of different beings, but when you backtrack these beings, they some of them have ties to Gog and Magog. Some of them have ties to the Edomites, and they band together. And yeah, we'll we'll dig into their history this week coming well, up. And and go ahead, go ahead, Sister Beth. I was gonna say if this is correlated with like the Ashkenazi people. Yes. Um, I found it very very interesting. I was gonna say when I did my my you 